you'd like to take your Bibles, please turn back to, yes, the book of Revelation. So it's been, uh, been over a month since we have been in the chapter. Hopefully today that begins at verse 14. The end of the chapter is in verse 20. So if you have your Bible in hand and you'd like to follow along, please do. So we read God's word together and I'd ask you to stand as we read. Again, this is Revelation chapter 14, the last book in your Bibles, uh, beginning at verse 14. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him, this whole chapter has voice used so many different times, all these different voices and so many different angels as well. To him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, because the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now verse 17, and another angel, another Remember, as we talked about in the past, another of the same kind. So these are all God's servants came out of the temple, which is in heaven. And he also had a sharp sickle. And another angel, the one who has the power over fire. We're not sure what that's all about. But maybe in reference to the fire in the heavenly temple, came out from the altar. And he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle. And gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. And the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Here we're getting into so much of the Old Testament imagery. And that's part of the beauty of the book of Revelation is there's just this tremendous bridge between all the prophecies of the Old Testament and the, and the vivid and dramatic imagery from the Old Testament. And we see it here fulfilled in this future prophecy in the book of Revelation. So we see Isaiah 63, we see Joel chapter 3, and other references from the Old Testament. And verse 20, and the winepress was trodden outside the city, and the blood came out from the wine press up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. You may be seated. Father in heaven, we are even floored as John was just thinking about the imagery from these final verses in chapter 14. Some that many may be thinking this is difficult to understand or this is really violent. What is this talking about? Lord God, I just pray that your Holy Spirit now would give us understanding. But Lord, that you would use your word. We know it's a living word. It's not just a story. It's not just a news report. It's not just a, a narrative or an opinion. But it's your holy and living word. And I pray, Lord, that you would take that word right now, here this morning, and that you would achieve your purpose with it that it would challenge us, that it would encourage us, that it would cause us to think and would go to the depths of our hearts this morning. Be our teacher, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know, we take life for granted. 
we really do. We, we plan, we schedule, we routinely organize events and holidays, trips, appointments, procedures, projects, well into distant future months with hardly a second thought. And that really hit me yesterday morning, as Kathy was talking about just a few moments ago, and maybe you did too, that it was exactly two years ago that we faced those same evacuation warnings and notices and had fires get even closer than they did yesterday. But how many of you were kind of triggered by that? If you live in this area here, you may have gotten some kind of an alert on your phone and, and your jaw might have dropped and you thought, again? We knew we had the red flag warnings and all of these different things, but none of us knew about that last week. None of us knew about that two weeks ago. None of us knew that whatever we had planned yesterday, Saturday, would be crowded out by that stress and tension and anxiety of, oh, there's another fire in our backyard and the wind is blowing and it's very dry out. We don't give those things a second thought. We take it all for granted. Think about the investments and the promotion of having an investment portfolio, 401ks, IRAs, are largely driven by the need to feel secure in, in many cases, retirement years that may be far off for some of us. We assume in many ways that, that tomorrow, in this case Monday, will be just like today. And for the most part, as far as our own well-being is concerned, for the most part, in a very general sense, that the year 2023 will pretty much just be like 2022. Most of the time, I think that we give it so little thought that really it's not even in the realm or category of issue. That is until the sirens come. Now, I don't say that to be morbid or dark, but listen. The shrill pitch of an emergency siren, whether real or symbolic, has a way of quickly restoring reality. The reality being we are not in control of the future. We talked about that last week. And none of us knows the number of our days. And none of us knows what those remaining days may even bring. As I shared a little bit last Sunday about my experience in Southern California with my dad and being in a position many times of not knowing whether he was going to live or die, not knowing what any hour or day was going to bring. For those two and a half weeks in August that I camped out in the hospital where my dad was, the sound of wailing sirens hit my ears about literally, I kid you not, every 20 to 30 minutes. Very, very busy hospital right in the middle of Southern California, Orange County area. Now seeing a daily basis, an overflowing emergency room, seeing dozens and dozens of patients wheeled into ICU every single day, those sirens became then more than just noise. They quickly began to represent real people. People with names, people with addresses, people with families, with husbands and wives and children and friends, 
peoples whose day was suddenly, shockingly interrupted. And I think it would be safe to say that most of them never saw it coming. But their predictable tomorrow was literally altered in seconds. The psalmist wrote in the Old Testament in Psalm 90, verse 12, Lord, teach us to number our days. Do you remember that verse? What does that mean? Literally, Lord, teach us to grasp, to understand, to know the brevity of life. Proverbs 27 begins, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. So, sort of an echoing, if you will, of James chapter 4, where we read these verses in the New Testament, beginning at verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such city, and spend a year there, and engage in business, and make a profit, verse 14. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. Do you remember those words? What we see here in the book of Revelation, in this 14th chapter, seems to set a similar tone. So we talked about last Sunday... Many, many things that we think are certain are uncertain. Many, many of those things that we take for granted can be suddenly taken away for us or, or put into that category of, I don't really know. But the Bible does talk about two things that are certain. Two things as we think about the duration and unpredictability of life that are certain. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 tells us, And inasmuch as it is accepted for men to die once, and after that comes judgment. We will all die, and there will be a judgment. Now, maybe not a pleasant thought, I understand. Maybe not the kind of message to put out on a sign to draw people in. Maybe not the greatest marketing tool. But it's true what God says, and it's certainly a sobering thought. And so as we return to the book of Revelation, this is what we're going to see, the reality of God's Judgment. Now, we have been apart from Revelation, as I mentioned, for over a month because of different family issues and different things that have gone on. So as we look at these final verses of, of chapter 14, let's kind of fill in some of the holes here. We began the chapter over a month ago looking at God's faithfulness in the opening verses. If you might remember this group of 144,000, who were they? 144,000 saved Jews during that seven-year tribulation period. 
But then we saw them from a heavenly perspective that God kept his promise. He was faithful. Then we looked at in verses 6 through 13, four unchangeables, three angels showing us, reminding us of unwavering certainties as future events unfold. As you and I look at the uncertainty even of uh, the future and what things has God come back to and said these things will never change well one of those things in the list that we looked at a month ago was God's judgment a clear biblical reality that let's face it is largely ignored even in the church dismissed even in the church even minimized and altered and changed and glossed over today even in the church. But that message is further highlighted in verses 14 through 20 with, as we just looked at together, some powerful dramatic imagery. Here we are seeing in verses 14 through 20, we're seeing literally double, right? As we just read it together, we're seeing two harvests. We're seeing what? Two reapings. We're seeing two sickles. And in the Old Testament, as well as in the Greek rendering of the New Testament imagery of the sickle, the, literally this is a sharp reaping hook that is used for three specific things. And we see it utilized here in this imagery, this dramatic imagery of the close of this chapter. It is used to harvest grain, number one. It is used for pruning, number two. And it is used for removing grapes at vintage. But these verses aren't blog notes on some kind of optimum uh, New Testament farming methods. These people that are being harvested, not grain, not grapes, are real people. These two are people with names, with, with families, with jobs, with addresses. People who, for the most part, have, have lived this as if there is another way, perhaps. Who have rejected John chapter 14 and thought, well, Jesus is too exclusive. There must be something else. Who have lived with the exception clause or, or a get out of spiritual jail free card. Or innumerable days before them acting as though they've got all the time in the world. Even though God's judgment has been advancing and become more fierce. And as we've seen throughout the book of Revelation. World calamities and death and all of these different things. There is still this segment, this group of people who continues to live. Who continues to reject the Lord. But it can't go on forever. Because then the sirens of God's judgment come. Look at verse 14 again as we just looked at it. As John begins, and I looked and I, I behold a white cloud. And sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man having a, a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. 
As the verse begins, the, the very beginning is always for the emphasis in the original Greek language. He says, he looked and he, and he beheld or he's beholding. It's in present tense. Meaning John is riveted to this figure. John is riveted to this scene and this one like the son of man. And, and John is floored as you and I would be too. Well, who is this one that John is first looking at in verse 14? The one who is like a son of man. Who is that? Well, if we go back in the Old Testament, we see similar imagery in the Old Testament book of Daniel, which there's so much cross-referencing back and forth to the book of Revelation. We read in Jan Daniel chapter 7, and I would encourage you to read that entire chapter, but beginning in verse 13, we read Daniel saying, he's had this vision. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, again, we have that imagery of clouds, clouds always being associated with God's presence and the majesty of God. One like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. We read back in the beginning of the book of Revelation, back in the first chapter, in the 13th verse, as we began the book of Revelation with a, a fascinating description of the, the resurrected, glorified Jesus Christ, we read in verse 13, And in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. The description of the Lord Jesus Christ, again, using the same language as in verse 14 here in Revelation chapter 14, was one like a son of man. He is wearing a crown. Now, there are two different words in the Greek language for crown. There is the diadem crown, the crown of the king, the crown of royalty. And there is the crown that is pictured here on the head of the one like the son of man. This is the Stephanos. This is where we get the name Stephen from. It's the crown of victory. It's the crown that was given out in the original Olympics to one who finished the race, who finished the course, who came in first. The crown of victory on his head. Why would that be on the Son of Man? Because he is victorious over sin and death. He has achieved for us what we could never achieve ourselves. He reigns in heaven as the victorious one. Remember, like the lamb who was slain. So we've read about consistently throughout Revelation. But is standing. The lamb who was slain, the sacrifice on our behalf, but now is alive and standing in the presence of God on our behalf. And what is this one like the son of man doing? He is executing his holy judgment. Now you say, wait a minute, this is Jesus and he's, he's swinging a sickle here. He's, he's, the, he's the judge, he's where... 
This isn't a popular image of the Lord Jesus Christ, is it? And yet we go back to the Gospel of John, chapter 5, and what do we read about Jesus? Beginning in verse 9, Jesus therefore answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you that the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, those things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all the things that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him that you may marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to who? To the Son. In order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. And he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you that he who hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. The Son is the judge. For so many, this is a, a very difficult concept, a very difficult image of the Lord Jesus to accept. Is it because we want to minimize that aspect of him? Is it because we don't like that whole imagery of judgment? Is it because we love grace and we love the love of Jesus and all of these other things? And so the, the truth of God here in John chapter 5, throughout the Old Testament, and here finalized in the book of Revelation as something that we want to hide, that we're ashamed of. When I was in that hospital in Southern California, it was a Catholic hospital, and there were lots of statues everywhere. My upbringing was in Catholicism. I'm well aware of, of the statues and the icons and, and praying to those things and praying to the saints and, and praying to Mary and all of that. But as I looked at those statues and, and actually knew, knew that there were people on a daily basis who were conversing with those statues, one even in my own family, that I wondered, sometimes don't we do the same thing with the Lord Jesus Christ? We statuefy him. I don't know if that's a real word, but it is now. We statuify Jesus to make him the picture that we want him to be. We form our own image of Jesus so that he becomes more manageable, more palatable, more agreeable with what we want him to be. We invent a Jesus literally on our own terms. Why is that dangerous? Because it denies the truth. If we're in the Lord Jesus Christ, according to the book of Romans, the eighth chapter, the first verse, there now is no more condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Well, what does that mean? We love that good news. It's the freedom. The, we're out of bondage. We're set free from our sin and death. But there is no longer condemnation if we're in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The condemnation is the reality, again, of the judgment of God, is the, the reality of the, the picture, as uncomfortable as it may be. That there is a son of man, there is a holy God who is going to eventually execute judgment. And what does he do here? He takes his sickle and we get, although it's not mentioned here, we assume this is a, a harvest of wheat here in the first part of this remaining part of chapter 14. And the second part with the angel are the grapes. But what does it say about them? It says in verse 16, he swung a sickle over the earth and the earth was reaped. At the end of verse 15, it says, the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. There's an interesting term there, ripe. Ripe, the word ripe is actually used twice in this section. It's used for what may be wheat, we don't know for sure. And it's also used for grapes which we know he's talking about grapes in the second part. But the two words for ripe are completely different, although we translate them the same in English. The first word for ripe that Jesus takes a sickle because it is ripe is the idea of something being overripe, something that's almost rotten. It's been on the vine or it's been out in the field so long it's almost past due. It's past its optimum ripeness. Why is that important? And why is that significant? And why is that something we don't want to miss? Because this shows us actually the first, it brings us to the first of two important aspects that we see here in chapter 14 about his judgment. And we'll see more about God's judgment as the rest of the book of Revelation unfolds. But we are reminded, number one, of this. He is graciously patient. Look, he's waiting with his sickle until the produce is practically rotten. What does that tell you? That is grace. Remember what 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 19 tells us? The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Why? Not wishing for any to perish, but all to come. To repentance. Paul wrote in his first letter to Timothy in the first chapter in describing himself. I love this description. It is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Paul is saying, I am the biggest sinner of anybody on earth. And yet for this reason, I found mercy in order that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. What is he telling us about our great God? He doesn't want to see anybody go to hell. He doesn't want to see anybody judged. He doesn't want to kill anybody unnecessarily. He doesn't want to see people come to the end of their lives and totally waste them, take for granted the days that they have and snub their nose at him. When this life is considered but a vapor compared to the life to come, he is patient wanting no one to perish, but all to come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that's not going to happen. The way is narrow. We see that played out in our world, the, the broad road that goes to, to destruction. 
They're different roads. We know there's not going to be a, a huge, huge amount of believers. In relation to the world population over time, we know there's going to be millions and millions. But God always wants there to be more. He is patient. He is graciously painted, patient, even as he has delayed judgment for as long as possible. But the righteousness of God still demands that one day the siren will come. I think this should floor us and amaze us because we like instant judgment. It's human nature, whether you want to admit it here or not. Somebody does something stupid to us and immediately we think, get them, zap them. Immediate payback, right? The guy that cut you off on the way to church this morning. They deserve it. Hope something happens. Where's the cop? Right? But Jesus waits. By grace, he waits. It's an amazing thing. Our God is an amazing God. If you and I were God, perish the thought. If we were, we would not be patient like he is. We cannot forget that even in his judgment is covered, completely wrapped in his grace. The second aspect that is so important about his judgment here is he is gloriously precise. He is gloriously precise. And another angel came out of the temple. He has a sharp sickle. The other angel who has power over fire comes out and he tells him, put in your sharp sickle, gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because the grapes are ripe. Now here the word for ripe means absolutely perfect. They're ready to be picked. It is the optimum time for harvest. And the angel swings his sickle to the earth and he gathers the clusters from the vine of the earth and he threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and the blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of approximately anywhere from 180 to 200 miles. It's just a violent disturbing picture it should be how can we take the final judgment of God after man has had all of these gracious opportunities and God brings history to a close in the book of Revelation and it's all over and the final siren has sounded how can we look at that and not be disturbed by that it's never going to be a pretty picture according to the way we like to see things with soft edges and feel-good tones, things that make us smile and laugh. Yes, there is a final judgment. And when the hour comes, the hour comes. Nothing will put it off. God is going to be swift. And believe me, those people that are under that judgment are going to say, I never saw it coming. Even though they've been warned, even though they've had the exposure of the word of God, even though the message of the gospel has gone out, we have, even during the tribulation period, verse 6, I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven having an eternal gospel to preach. It's always going to be based upon that eternal gospel. Remember the word, we talked about this a month ago, eternal, meaning it never changes. The gospel never changes. Now, we change it. 
We de-emphasize certain things. We, we preach a gospel that we emphasize other things depending on what's going on in culture. We don't want to turn anybody off. We don't want to offend anybody. We have a PC gospel that basically denies sin, that denies rebellion, that denies all of these other things, the righteousness of God, the judgment of God. But that doesn't change the gospel. It doesn't change it for God. We can change it, but it doesn't change it. And what is the gospel? It's yes or no, isn't it? It's not maybe. It's not that somehow God will, well, you know, I'm waiting. I've never taken Jesus Christ very seriously. I'm still waiting that maybe God will grade on a curve or, or maybe there will be something else. Maybe there will be some exception clause. Maybe there will be some fine print. Maybe God will change his mind. Maybe this will all just go away. And one day the earth will end and we'll all just be lifted up to heaven and everybody will live happily ever after, just like a fairy tale. That may be what we're thinking. But that doesn't change the reality of the eternal gospel. It's say yes to Jesus or no to Jesus. It's surrender to Jesus or reject Jesus. It's all about coming under the blood of Jesus and recognizing that I can't do any of this on my own. I am lost in my trespasses and sins. I need a savior. I need the shed blood of Jesus or I've got a pretty good life. I'm a pretty good person. I've kept a lot of the Ten Commandments. I've never murdered anybody yet. I'm okay. People like me. I'm pretty popular on social media. People talk to me. I'm a good neighbor. I'm a good citizen. It's one or the other. Many, many years ago, I befriended an, an older man here in the Redland community. And he was a hard nut to crack. Man, he was a mean guy. And I would go, in the very beginning, he told me to leave. I would want to visit with him, and he would just say, can you just leave? And then it was five or ten minutes. And then it was a little bit longer, but he still didn't really like me. And then I, would, I said, one day, I said, can I pray with you? And he said, ugh. He was disgusted. He said, if you have to. <laughs> and I said, I have to. And he said, okay. But he was just, while I prayed, you know, he was just <clears throat> grunting and groaning. This went on for two to three years. And I developed a relationship with this guy. And like I said, he was just resistant. He was kicking and screaming. And then he got diagnosed with a fatal illness. And suddenly, I saw a different person. Not entirely. But our visits got a little bit longer. We could talk about a few deeper things. I began to share some scripture with him. He still rejected it. He still didn't like it. He would still make mean, terrible comments here and there. But then he got really bad. The prognosis was not good. He was going to go soon. And I, I remember meeting with him when he was bad. And I spent about an hour with him. And I just shared the gospel with him straight out again. I've done it dozens of times. And I said, this is it. 
I said, you know what? This is it. I was angry. I said, your time is up. This is it. What are you going to do? You have a decision to make. You're on, you're on death's doorstep. He listened and he nodded and and after all that I pled with him. He said, you know what? He goes, I'm going to consider everything that you had to say and you come back tomorrow morning and talk to me about it again. And it brought tears to my eyes. Well, guess what happened? There was no tomorrow morning. He was gone overnight. We can't assume that we know how many days there are ahead of us. We can't assume when we hear those sirens. I grew very sensitive to the sound of sirens. It's almost a trigger now. I heard a bunch of them yesterday. There was a, apparently a house on fire But you know what began to happen? God even changed my heart when I heard those sirens. I began to pray. When I heard a siren, I began to pray. At first it was, Lord, I don't know what happened to these people. They're in a car accident or they had a heart attack or I don't know what happened, but you know, help them out. Whatever they need, just help them out. Because most of the, at that time, they were all coming into the hospital. But then I began to pray as I more and more was just floored by my dad's need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And sitting on that, that edge line where you don't know, is he going to be here tomorrow? I would really, really love to see him and my mom together in heaven one day. I began to pray for the souls of the people when I heard sirens. It's a good habit to get into. That whatever the circumstances is, they probably didn't wake up this morning and think they were going to be in an ambulance. If you've ever been in an ambulance, I doubt you did that. I've been in one. I certainly didn't wake up that morning and say, things to do. Call 911 and take a ride in an ambulance. It's a pretty expensive ride. And you wouldn't either. But one day that final siren of God's judgment will come. I would be a highly irresponsible pastor if I didn't tell you this. One day it will be too late. But God in his gracious mercy says, today is the day. I've given you another day. I've given you another hour. You don't even know what's going to happen this afternoon, but you have right now. If you've said yes to Jesus Christ, you can rejoice. Yes, there is no condemnation for you if you are in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord, right? Praise the Lord. Don't take that for granted. The judgment will still come, but what side will you be on? You'll be the sheep side, right? You'll be at the wedding feast for the lamb. You'll be an extension of the 144,000 in heaven. But if you're hesitant this morning, if you're not sure, 
If somebody were to ask you that question, what side of God's judgment are you on right now? And you're, uh, if you even do that, if you go, uh, then there's a problem. We can't assume that our calendars are going to play out the way we have them all planned already. We can't assume that 2023 is just going to be like 2022. Some of you are saying, great, I hope it's not. We can't assume that tomorrow is going to be just like today because the sirens come. If there's even a doubt in your mind, I would encourage you before you leave this place today to say yes to Jesus Christ. To say, yeah, I don't have anything. I don't have anything I can bring to salvation except the finished work of Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, I just pray that if there's anybody, even in this room, Lord, we can't assume that it has any shred of doubt that you would draw them to Jesus right now and that you would give them the hope and the security of eternal life even under judgment. And Lord God, even as we think about the sobering message of Revelation chapter 14, may we look at others around us who don't know Jesus with a greater urgency to share his love, to share his message with them. We love you. We thank you for your patience that brought us into the kingdom of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.